Ephesians 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Paige. There's a story of a young boy who loved the water and loved boating, and he lived in Michigan near the shore somewhere, and he actually spent some time with his dad building a little boat. Uh, They spent time crafting. It was a really nice boat. uh, Built it so that, a small boat, not one that he's going to get in, but one that he's going to play with. And he would play with it uh, along the shores. And one day, unfortunately, a gust of wind came up and took his boat out into the lake. And he couldn't catch it. And it was lost. And every day, he would go down by the shore, searching, hoping that his boat had been washed up onto the beach. And then one day, as he walked uh, walked through the downtown area, he looked through the window of a shop, and he saw his boat. Obviously, he's fired up, and he runs inside to talk to the owner of the store to exclaim, that's my boat! To which the owner replied, it may be, but uh, for you to have the boat, you're going to have to pay for it because I paid a handsome amount of money to a fisherman who sold me the boat so that I could sell it in my store. So you can have the boat, but you need to pay for it. So the boy worked some jobs, got some money, gathered it up together, came back to the store owner, and he purchased the boat. And he leaves the store, and he's excited, and he exclaims, he's so excited to have his boat, and he says, you are twice mine. Rather than being discouraged at what he had to do, he's excited, he says, you are twice mine. Because I made you, and I purchased you. I made you, and I purchased you. And that's kind of the essence of what we're going to be talking about in verses 7 and following about redemption. As we learned last week in verses 3 to 6 about God bestowing his spiritual blessings on us, and he looked, and he saw us, and he chose us before the foundation of the world, and he made us. But we know we, we rejected his goodness. And even though he knew that would be, he still sent his son to redeem us. The word redemption here in our text, if you look at verse 7, it says, in him we have redemption. That word means a payment price, a payment, a payment as a ransom. Kind of like the boy, he goes and he buys this boat. It was kind of being held in a sense for ransom. But it's more significant than that in this text. 
This is speaking more to being set free from slavery, set free from bondage, more kind of looking back into the Old Testament when you think of the people of Israel, they found themselves in Egypt in slavery, oppressed and in bondage, and God sets them free. And as we consider this amazing truth of redemption and as Paul unpacks it for us in the text. There's a reality. We all can struggle with with sin in our life or with the weights of the things going on in our life, burdens that we experience, and we can forget that this truth is ours. And Paul wanted to make clear to the church the church in Ephesus, the church in the region, churches, all the churches that would read this letter, including ours, that the redemption that we have is something that we have. Look at your text. In him, we have redemption. Not in him, we need to then earn redemption. We, not, we don't have to do some things. We have redemption. It's been accomplished already. It's been accomplished through his blood. In him, we have redemption through his blood. That's speaking to what Christ has done. Not what we need to do, what Christ has already done. Because we need to live in the good of what Christ has done. Paul speaks to this in Colossians Chapter 1, when he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We should be in prison, but we are set free. We should be dead, but we are alive in Christ. Because it's as it says in the text, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses. We needed to be forgiven because we were going to face the judgment of God. We were going to face the judgment of God justly for for our disobedience. And if, if God didn't forgive, how could we survive? Psalm 130 says, Lord, if we kept a record of our sins, if you kept a record of our sins, who who, O Lord, could survive? But you offer forgiveness. It is true, as you might feel the weight of sin and struggle, we need to know in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We need to know that. We need to know the, the Psalms speak to this wonderful truth when it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he taken our sin from us. The Father wants us to live in the good of this truth. He doesn't want us to just know it in our heads. John Calvin said this about forgiveness. He said, God puts our sins out of his remembrance and drowns them in the depths of the sea and moreover receives the payment that was offered him in the person of his only son. Now, we talk about that regularly in our church, and we need to because we forget. But we can't earn this forgiveness in any works that we do. There's a story about a man named 
Albert Speer. The late Chuck Colson tells a story about him. He saw him on uh, like a morning show being interviewed. Uh, Albert Speer was one of the 24 individuals who was tried at the Nuremberg trials because he was one of Hitler's right-hand men. He was the one, through his genius, kept factories and things going for the Germans in World War II. But there's something unique about him. He is the only one of the 24 that admitted his guilt. He's the only one that, that owned it. And he spent 20 years in prison. And in his writings, because he wrote a number of things, uh, he, he wrote some things, and the interviewer's asking him this. He says, you, you said that the guilt can never be forgiven, and it, it shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? Like he's already served his time. And this is how he responded. He said, I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say, I am a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as a punishment. But this is what he said. He said, but I can't get rid of it. I can't get rid of it. And he'd written a book in hopes to like a tone for the things that he did. And there's a reality in his life. Over 35 years, he accepted complete responsibility for the crimes that he committed. He even wrote things appealing to people. He, was, he had contrition, and he warned people not to engage in the sin that he found himself in. desperately wanted to know forgiveness. And Chuck Colson writes, I wanted to reach out to him, and unfortunately not long after this interview, he died. So I don't know if this man ever encountered Christ, but though he was, he was contrite, he couldn't earn the freedom that he so longed for. And Paul wants to make clear to us, we have been forgiven. We have been forgiven. The first place to start, if you haven't, if you're, if you're wrestling in your life, if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the place to start is to come and to say, God, forgive me for my sins. You could do that this morning. You do this when we take communion. You could do that when we sing at the end. You can pray with someone before you leave here today. Don't leave here today without getting that right. But those who are here, who come here on a regular basis, we are forgiven. We need to know that. We need to be reminded of that. We need to gather regularly to remind ourselves, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We have been forgiven. It is finished. It is a done deal. I could say it again. That could be the only thing we talk about this morning. That's a truth we need to take home to the bank. We don't need to walk around with a cloud over our heads feeling the weight. We have been forgiven. 
We want to live in the good of that. Because as we live in the good of that, it certainly informs us to forgive others. But we aren't going to forgive others if we don't understand the depth of our forgiveness. In the series that we did early on in the year, Gospel Matters, we, we talked about the unforgiving servant. You remember that story? The unforgiving servant, he was forgiven this massive debt. And then somebody else owed him a, a little bit of money in comparison. I mean, he's like trying to get the money out of him. Why did he do that? Because he didn't understand the magnitude of his forgiveness. Why do we sing about our forgiveness? Why do we take communion regularly? Because we need to be reminded of how much we have been forgiven. And knowing that God intentionally sent his son to the cross, knowing about our disobedience also just blows our mind at God's love for us. Live in the good of that, brothers and sisters. We are forgiven. And the text goes on. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. That's the kind of magnitude of the forgiveness that he gives. According to his riches. God's not like a penny pincher. He's not, he's not some stingy, crotchety old guy. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, according to the riches of his grace. Let's, let's understand that. It's not just like, he's not just a little handout. When we think about riches and giving away riches, we often think about people who have significant means, right? Lots of wealth. Somebody like John D. Rockefeller who's still kind of like, if you adjust for inflation, probably the richest individual in, in the last couple hundred years. And it was known about him at his later end in life that he would give away dimes to kind of young, poor kids who'd be kind of running around on the streets, maybe when the press was around to take his picture to put it in the newspaper, he'd be giving that away. And certainly a dime at that point in time was significant could feed their family for a day or for a number of days. So that was certainly significant. But John D. Rockefeller was giving from his wealth, not according to his wealth. It was, it was out of, it was kind of extra. It was just a little proceeds off, off the top. If he had given according to his wealth, it says here, God, according to the riches of his grace, if he'd given according to his wealth, he'd have been like, you know what? I'm going to give you a dime. I'm going to buy you a mansion. I'm going to buy you a mansion. It's going to have 10 bedrooms and 12 bathrooms and a massive kitchen, a pantry filled with food. That would have been a gift according to his riches. So God gives us grace according to his riches, his unmerited favor. What God gives that we don't deserve. It's not just like, you don't deserve it, so I'm going to give you a little bit. No, he pours out his grace upon us. Pours out his grace. You're like, is that too good to be true? It's true. It's true. He pours out his grace. Paul wanted these believers to know, and we need to know, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Because God has everything at his disposal. 
Certainly, he provides for our tangible, physical needs, but he pours out his grace upon us. Charles Hodge said, when God gives in accordance with the riches of his grace, he gives from his unlimited treasure house. Grace is unmerited favor, an overflowing abundance of unmerited love, inexhaustible in God and freely accessible in Jesus Christ. And what does it look like to be, to be living in the good of that? I think of the story that we talked about from the, the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. Remember the sinful woman who, who was known as a sinner? She was known as a sinner, and she enters into the room where Jesus is at a table where everybody had disrespected him, and she, she falls down, and she weeps, and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and anoints his feet. How, how could someone do such a thing? She understood that she had received that which she did not deserve. God wants us to grasp this, brothers and sisters. He wants us to live in the good of the reality that he has poured out his grace upon us. Poured it out. You're like, I need grace. He gives it and he gives more. His mercies are new every morning. Every time you wake up, there's, there's even more. Is there going to be enough? Sometimes you think there's not going to be enough. Well, here's the reality. You're here. God has continued to pour out his grace upon you, his empowering grace, his, not, his saving grace. He's poured out his grace, and he wants you to know your place. He wants you to know who you are, that you are in him. And so that when we are given the opportunity to extend grace, it's just the natural outflow of who we are. Going through the book of Ephesians is about talking about our identity, who we are. You aren't stingy because your God isn't stingy. When, when there's relational discord, we believe the best about someone and we extend grace. We extend favor that may not be, uh, may not be earned, may not be even deserved. Why would we do that? Because we are aware. We are aware of the massive amounts of grace that God has poured out upon us. Why would we forgive someone? Well, because we have been forgiven much. I can't imagine not forgiving you because what you've done for me just pales in comparison to what the Savior has done for me. So when you're confronted with challenges in relationship, you consider Christ. You consider who you are in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I love that word. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. When you read that in the English language, it kind of sounds like God did all these great things because he's, he's all wise and all knowing. Just, it's like it's, a, it's an add-on. But really, in the original, it's, it's yet another thing that God is pouring out. He pours out forgiveness and grace and, 
and he pours out wisdom and insight. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So we're given this discernment as God gives us forgiveness. So wisdom and understanding, what, what do those mean? Here's the definition, wisdom. Knowledge which sees to the heart of things, which knows them as they really are. So it's understanding things as they really are. Not as someone guesses them to be. Wisdom is really kind of understanding things, is, is, is knowing things as they really are. And, and understanding leads us down the right path. It's kind of a, something that takes us to action. Wisdom is the knowing of what is right. Understanding shows that we kind of do and we walk down the path of what is right. And in our day, we could, we could, we could use some wisdom, right? Things are pretty nutty. People are believing some crazy things. And we can be tempted to believe various things. But he's poured out his grace, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So he's given us, he's revealed wisdom to us. He's done it through his son Jesus. We know about God because of of Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We can know about God because he's revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. But he's also given us his word. We don't have a God who just sits up there and goes, figure it out. He's not sitting up there laughing. When you think about the stories of like the Greek gods or the Roman gods who are just kind of like basically selfish people, that's what they are, and they, they look at humanity as just a, a game to play, to manipulate. That's so far opposite than our loving, awesome creator who brought us in his family and says, no, I, I'm going to open your eyes to the truth of what, what is to be. And, and he does that by giving us his word. So how do we understand? Because, yeah, some things in our day, it's kind of hard to discern. What is it that we should be? How, how should I think about this thing? But it's not always, sometimes there's a chapter and verse that we go to in, in the scriptures that, that points us to something that, yep, that's, that's what I should do. That's the action I should take. But other times it's, that's a little foggy. I'm not really sure. The cumulative effect of giving yourself to God's revealed you know, truth in his word bears the fruit of wisdom and understanding. That's why we open God's word every week when we gather together. That's why we open God's word when we gather together as, uh, you know, in small groups. I was encouraged to hear uh, this week, uh, one of the small groups, the guys in the small group, uh, they got together and they said, hey, we want to grow deep. We want to get deep. We're going to study a topic of scripture. They're going to they're gonna put a topic before one another, and then they're going to, like, disperse. And over the, the course of the month, they're going to study it on their own, and they're going to come back, and they're going to discuss it. They, they decided to do this on their own. Does that mean they're going to write these massive, thick theses on... No, they're not going to be massive theologians, but you know the benefit of digging into God's Word is they're going to become wise and understanding. They're going to have revelation about who God is because he's revealed himself to us. He's poured that out upon us. They're going to have a more of an awareness of the forgiveness of their sins. And ultimately, it's going to bear the fruit of them being 
better, believe, better husbands and fathers. They're going to abide more intimately with Christ, and they're going to live in the good of this. So let's give ourselves to these things. Let's be measured. Let's, let's be who God has called us to be. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. We all love a mystery, right? I love a mystery. I love mystery stories. Like it's just the, the twists and turns of stuff, right? Like things that aren't known. I love it. As long as I know I'm going to find out the, the, what, what the mystery is, right? Because, you know, there's times where you, you engage in a, in a TV show, right? That the whole premise of the show is there's something that's not known. And all the characters are trying to figure something out about it. And each show kind of, there's a cliffhanger at the end of every show. And you learn a little bit more. And you think you got it. And you don't know. And you, it's going on and going on. And you, you're at the end of season three. And you're like, man, the next season I'm going to find out. And then they cancel the show. You're like, oh, I don't, I'm never going to know what happened. And it drives you nuts. Maybe it doesn't drive you nuts. And I know we can laugh about TV shows, but we, we feel that way in life. You ever feel that way? There's this thing I think I'm going to figure out, and I just never can figure it out. What is the deal? Why is this happening? Well, God, though there are going to be things in our life that we may not know why they have happened until we're in eternity, and when we see Jesus face to face, we might not even care at that point. There, there may be some of those things, but God has revealed the mystery of his will to us. Season three didn't end, and he said, ah, sorry, you don't get to find out. No, he tells us right out of the gate that there is something for us to anticipate, and it's the future blessing of unification. Look back at your Bibles. So verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. To unite all things in him. Now to be clear, Paul's not talking about everyone in the world becoming saved. Some teach that lie. Scripture is clear. Paul unpacks in the book of, of Romans and, and other places about God's judgment. He talks about God's judgment. Jesus talks about hell when he talks about the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a place that one goes. If we reject God's good, wonderful son, we do spend eternity in a place separate from him. But yet there's this wonderful thing that is being talked about here, that, that God is going to unite all things in him. Not just the relationships, because we see it. Like, there's anger right now. Like, people just are straight up angry, bitter towards one another. We're, we're kind of wanting hate. And in, in our world, we often go right to the relationships as, as the brokenness of the world or the wars and the rumors of wars. But think about all creation. Think about the earthquakes 
and the hurricanes and the monsoons and all those disasters. Think about the shows, like maybe like the National Geographic shows that are all supposed to be really nice. And then you sit your kids in front of the TV and then you see a wild animal go and just rip apart another animal. It's violent. That doesn't look great. All of creation is groaning for peace. Romans 8, Paul says, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation is groaning. We're not just growing. All of creation is groaning for this. And Christ, in Christ, he's set forth a plan. One commentator said Christ will bring together all aspects of God's diverse creation. In 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, God will place everything under Christ. We learn from Colossians 1.20, God will reconcile all things to him in Christ. We know from Philippians 2 that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Everything under heaven and earth will bow to him. We're going to submit and pay tribute to Christ. So think about that. No more racial tensions. No more fractured relationships. No more fear of wild animals, even. A cosmic regeneration of the universe. And it was, it was set forth, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose set forth in Christ. He's going to unite all things in him. Like Jesus sees this, this brokenness like a parent comes with their child and scoops them up and says, no, we're going we're gonna to protect them. Everything is going to be united in him. The paradise that was lost at the fall is the paradise that will be restored. And Isaiah gives us a picture of it. Isaiah 11, 6 to 8. I think we have it on the screen. Look at this. The wolf, so this is, this is what Jesus is going to do. In the future, what's going to happen in the new heavens and new earth, that things are going to be, we're gonna, we're, this is the place we're going to be. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. I don't know that you see too many wolves hanging out with lambs, right? And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them oh, we've all seen those youtube videos like a kid falls in at a zoo and we're all like oh what's gonna happen no in heaven like like i release the kids to go to harvest kids hey kids go get the lions today we're gonna you're gonna we're gonna have a little parade and that's not it it goes on the cow and the bear shall graze. 
Not the bear will graze on the cow. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The nursing child. We're, not, we're talking about the one that's, that's maybe not even fully like walking, just kind of crawling. Yeah, there's a cobra hole over there. Just let him play. And the weaned child should put his hand on the adder's den. You want to hear your kids laugh, you know? <laughs> Around the adder's den. That's the picture of what Christ is going to do in all creation. So when when we feel like I'm just ready to get off the crazy train, this, this life is, it is absolutely nuts. You ever feel like that? You're like, yeah, I think I'm riding the crazy train. I've been on a lot of cars on the crazy train. We need to look ahead. We need to look forward to what Christ is going to fully and finally accomplish. Because our redemption isn't just about us individually. It's our redemption. We have been redeemed by the forgiveness of our sins through his blood. We have been, and all creation will be redeemed. There are implications for this. Why would we pursue unity with one another? Well, because God's going to do this amazing thing. And when we pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, we are displaying that kingdom that is going to come. So that's why we would pursue unity with one another. That's why we would forgive one another, because of the magnitude of what's happened for us. That's why we would pursue peace with others outside our local church, maybe with other Christians. Guys, the other gospel-preaching churches in town, they are on the same team. They're worshiping Jesus this morning as well. They are longing for this. We're all going to be gathering around the same throne. Maybe they use different instruments than we do. Maybe they use a different Bible translation than we do. doesn't matter. They're worshiping Jesus. The gospel-preaching churches, we, that's why we can maybe have a Bible study with them at our workplace. That's why, you know, thinking about what's going to happen informs us as we engage with our community. Because Christians can kind of have a holy huddle and just kind of gather over here because it's safe. No, we, we extend grace to those who don't know Christ because they're not going to see it in any other place. We don't respond in anger because God has poured out his grace upon us. Like these deep truths have implications for how we live, friends. So may we be the aroma of Christ to God, to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing by sharing Christ with them and displaying his love, laying our lives down because we get this isn't all there is. We don't need to hold on to this stuff because we're going to get that. That's where we're going. And remember who's writing this. Paul is writing these words 
And I may not have mentioned this in the last couple of messages, but, but Paul's likely writing these words in prison. Okay, he's not in a dungeon somewhere, like some medieval dungeon under a, a castle. Likely he is under house arrest. So he is likely shackled, handcuffed, or maybe his ankle shackled to an armed guard, the Roman cohort. And that's where he is, day in, day out. Night, day, night, day. So he's got some time in his hands as he's pondering. He's not going, this stinks. I can't believe I'm in the midst of this. No, he's going, wow. Let me, let me consider. Let's look back. What, what was God doing in eternity past? No, he was saying, I want you to be in my family. I'm going to send my son to die for you because I love you this much. And this is what Jesus is going to do. I'm, just in case you are wondering what's going to happen at the end of all things, he's going to unite all things in him. That's why Paul, it starts his letters, and in his letters, he's constantly, I thank God for you, or I thank God, or praise be to God, because he's not thinking about his present circumstances. We get so distracted by our present circumstances. God wants us to look beyond, and it informs our present circumstance. It informs how we navigate each and every day, because these amazing realities inform today. We want to take time to rest in Christ, to delight in Christ. We want to remind one another regularly about what Christ has done. And it will take our eyes off of us and take our eyes on Jesus and look full at his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.